It's July 18, 2015, a Saturday. The local police force in Riverton, Wyoming gets a call at around 4 in the afternoon about a shooting nearby. A man has just walked into an alcohol detox facility and shot two patients asleep in their bed. Both patients are members of a northern Arapaho native tribe. One dies and the other hangs on to his life despite a critical headshot wound. But oddly, the man calling the police is the shooter, a 32-year-old man named Roy Clyde. Before calling 911, Roy walked out of the facility and placed his handgun on the pavement. And now he's waiting for the police to arrest him. What could have motivated this seemingly random attack? And why would the perpetrator call the police on himself? We'll address these questions and more in the story to come, so keep listening if you're ready for another episode. This is Invisible Hate. Hello everyone, I'm Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Butt. Invisible Hate is a true crime podcast where Sadia and I research a crime committed against a member or members of a minority community and then share the story with all of you. With each of the cases, there have been arguments that the crime was specifically a hate crime. So Sadia and I also put our own spin on the true crime genre in this podcast. We also discuss whether or not we think the story was in fact a hate crime or not. And listeners, we would love for all of you to think through these cases with us and reach your own opinion. You may arrive at a conclusion different from ours. But you know what else, Asad? I've been thinking about the true crime space overall and wondering, why do we like to listen to these scary, often depressing stories? I mean... They don't often restore my faith in humanity, right? What do you think? That's, I mean, it's fascinating. The true crime genre has obviously been big and is getting bigger. And you're right. Like these stories are depressing, sad, scary. What do we like about them? And I was thinking about this question and think it's the idea that I would imagine that the majority of our listeners have some sort of like, you know, base set of morals and ethics that they live by. And then, you know, you have these people that are out there that just don't (laughs) live by that same moral code or amoral code at all. And so like, who are these people? And yeah, and I think people just like to be scared. What do you think? It's interesting you say that because the first thought that came to my mind was maybe we like to reinforce our moral superiority through these Mm. cases because then we feel that we are morally better than others. And at the end of the day, for me personally, in addition to that, I feel it's highlighting injustices. I said something that you and I have talked about a number of times on this podcast, especially we want to expose our listeners to crimes that are happening and very few people either know about them or are aware how these crimes impact not just individuals but communities. Yeah, totally. You know, Sadi, I used to work in broadcast news and, you know, this is whatever, 20 years ago. And that was kind of uh, around the peak time of where this kind of phrase, if it bleeds, it leads um, came from, which basically mm. means like if it, if the story was gushy and brutal and murder and whatever, then it would lead the newscast. And that was a change for, you know, from a generation where the top of this news story was usually like, you know, the 
biggest impact in society or a political story or whatever it was. But this kind of bleeds it leads where like car accidents and police chases and, you know, murders would all kind of lead the podcast and the viewership increased and people love that kind of stuff and would stay tuned in. And so it's it's really interesting to me. That's quite interesting, I said, but I would like to think that stories like the ones we are telling on this podcast, the ones that have impact on individuals and communities will be shared and listened and will make an impact, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, you know, we'd love to know why you're listening to True Crime Podcasts or our podcasts in general. Definitely email us or ping us, let us know, and we'll share how people respond. Sadhya, do you want to get to today's story? Absolutely. Riverton, Wyoming is a relatively small town of about 10,000 people. Maybe its name doesn't ring a bell now, but it's no insignificant place. You see, Riverton was once known as a rendezvous point. Native communities often traded here centuries ago and continued to do so as American traders, fur trappers and mountain men explored the area too. Hopefully, we're all familiar with the unjust and often brutal history that has surrounded Native American and the United States relations for a long time. It will become an important part of this story after all, because today, if you look at Riverton on a map, you'll notice it's actually surrounded by a three and a half square mile chunk of land called the Wind River Reservation. In the context of the United States, the word reservation is associated with Native American communities. And yes, today the Eastern Shoshone and Northern Arapaho tribes call this reservation home. But of Wind River's total population of 26,000 people, only about half of those people are actually Native. Why is this important to point out? Well, reservation politics are frustrating to say the least. Through various policies and conflicts, the US government has either forced native groups off their land or slowly influenced native groups to surrender their land. And that's putting it very simply, listeners. Founded in 1906, Riverton is only one such case where a reservation ceded a chunk of its territory to the creation of a town. Now, Riverton is about 78% white and 10% native. And as you may have guessed, there is a bit of tension between these two demographics. Older leaders of the reservations, Shoshone and Arapaho, remember from their childhood reading signs in store windows that said, and I quote, no Indians, unquote. The signs may be gone, but microaggressions remain an issue as many native community members report. That's crazy, Sadia. I didn't know anything about Riverton and its history. And I feel like there's probably uh, dozens, if not hundreds of cities like this across the country where I just was never taught about, you know, this Native American history. So, I'm, you know, I'm not surprised by what you're saying, and but I'm really interested to learn more. Right, Asad. But you know what else? Whenever I research Roy Clyde's case, another situation pops up. Riverton had a bit of a controversy two years before Roy Clyde. In 2013, a northern Arapaho woman had been walking down the street when she felt something hit her head and then realized that one of her eyes was bleeding. What do you think the hospital did when she went to the hospital? As, of course, anyone would do in her shoes. Well, I'm hoping that she was treated and uh, got the care that she needed. But my guess is that you're going to say that that is not what happened. 
Absolutely, I said. The hospital turned her away and claimed she was drunk. Oh no! And when she resisted this, she was taken to the county jail, according to the High Country News. Yeah, jail. And guess what? Turns out that woman had been shot in the head by someone driving by. Oh my goodness! Wow. I'm almost laughing because of how absurd it is that someone was literally shot in the head and then turned away from the hospital. You know, like you can't even, you know, it, you can't even make this stuff up, right? Right. And I said, what's mind-boggling to me is that obviously getting shot is a very blatant sign of violence, but the hospital's actions are a microaggression to say the least, right? Not only did they turn her away by accusing her of being drunk, they were also feeding into a common stereotype about Native Americans. So, listeners, listen closely. Alcoholism may be a real issue for some people, but when it creeps into assumptions and microaggressive behavior, yeah, it can be pretty destructive. In the case of that woman, it almost cost her life. So, all of this is the contextual atmosphere that brings us to July. 2015. The man who will soon become the murderer in this case is a 32-year-old Roy Clyde. We actually don't know too much about his personal life. None of our sources mention his potential family or friends. And honestly, it would be nice to have some people who can attest to Roy's personality. But before this day, Roy doesn't seem to be a particularly noteworthy guy. By that, I just mean that there is no previous history of arrests. or problematic interactions at least not from what we could find what we do know is that roy has spent 13 years now working for the city specifically he works in the city parks and spends his time cleaning and maintaining the area but in fact as roy will claim later there's one major part of his job that has become increasingly frustrating for him the homeless population Every single source on this case that we read through simply says that Roy was growing tired of cleaning up after the homeless in the park and on Saturday July 18 his anger comes to a head. Now Asit what really surprised me about this case was wasn't that Roy's job to clean, right? Yeah, I mean based on what you're telling me, but I, you know, I think generally i don't find it surprising that even if that was your job that you get upset with having to clean up after others including you know people that are homeless so it doesn't surprise me that he's being angry i mean the homeless houseless conversation and debate is such a heated one for everybody involved we can't have people trashing out their our parks um we can't have the environmental impact on our our natural resources everybody thinks that they have the right solution and everybody feels like it's you know someone else's fault. It's astonishing it keeps increasing uh pretty much day by day and the resources seem to be diminishing. So, you know, I I can understand, you know, why he's angry that, you know, he's probably cleaning up the same stuff, you know, over and over again, but yeah, like you said it's his job and so, you know, he's getting paid to do it. Right, but you're also right I said because his response is no sudden spur of the moment type of thing though. Apparently, Roy has been considering targeting the homeless for a while. Now, no source specifies exactly what a while means. Has he been thinking about this for years, months, days? We don't know. At the very least, his actions are definitely premeditated. Again, something that our listeners should take note of. 
According to a 2015 CNN article, Roy first goes to Riverton City Park, likely where he himself has been working. But despite all the homeless people that supposedly bother him in this area, this CNN article states that Roy didn't find anyone at the park who met his quote-unquote criteria. Of course, you're probably wondering what all is part of his criteria, and I was wondering that too. Because after he leaves the park, he heads to the center of hope, about a three-minute drive away. This is an alcohol detox facility that supposedly treats people that Roy believes will meet his criteria. I know, sounds bizarre, and it is a bit odd. Center of hope is not just for the poor or homeless. The facility treats anyone struggling with alcohol addiction. And sure, while they do have homeless outreach programs, it's not like everyone you run into there will be homeless. By the way, stay with this thought. We'll come back after the break. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. Sally, you were telling us about the Center of Hope and how Roy was targeting, you know, this facility. We'd love to learn more. Right, Asad. So somewhere around 4 p.m. that day, Roy enters the building through the back door. Armed with his handgun, he walks to an area for the clients at the center. And just like that, he shoots 29-year-old Stallone Trosper and 50-year-old James Goggles in the head. Both men had been sleeping. Was it open fire around the facility or was it two quick shots at these two specific men? sources aren't too specific about this even though i think it's important when considering hate crime targeting now an article from mercury news however does say that some staff members and detox clients locked themselves in a bathroom when the shooting began and i would do the same thing we hear about so many mass shootings everywhere i said it really freaks me out you know i will say sadia just you never know how you're going to react in these situations. And I'll just say one night about uh, a year ago, I was getting up late because I was hungry and, you know, I eat when I'm tired and uh, I can't sleep. And so I got went to my kitchen. And all of a sudden, I hear what sounded like a car backfiring and I just like looked out the window and I was like, OK, it must be like a car. And the next day I find out that it was a drive by shooting. Someone was shooting at the tree in my neighbor's uh, yard across the street. Oh, no. And so clearly in that situation, I didn't do anything when I heard gunshots. So I'm just saying, you know, depending on the situation, you might not do anything. Wow. So that's scary. But anyways, coming back to the case. So if I'm using contextual evidence, does that suggest that enough time passed after the first shot for someone to run to the bathroom? Mm. I mean, that's the first thought that came to my mind. Does it mean Roy took enough time to scout out the two specific people he wanted to target? Also, these are headshots, which probably means he wasn't just firing randomly. And keep this in mind too, after Roy shoots these two men, he simply walks out of the facility and calls the police on himself, which is so bizarre to me, Asad. In fact, a photograph of the arrest even shows him shirtless. Yeah, not sure what's that about. But at the very least, it seems kind of, I don't know, scarily casual, like he did something he was supposed to do and then he's just relaxing. Well, 
we have a lot of unanswered questions so far, but what do you think, Asit? Yeah, you know, Sadia, my my general thought is that this is someone who had things just built up inside of him and needed this release. And for this, you know, for him, instead of, you know, punching a wall or whatever, he decided to go to this facility and shoot people. And, you know, I, I just watched um, the Netflix show Beef. I don't know if you've watched it or binged it at all, but it reminds me of that in a little bit in that, like, the story of this of Beef, for those that don't know, is essentially like, you know, two people get into a road rage incident and then it escalates and escalates and escalates over the course of the season and you know, little things keep on building inside these two individuals. And I feel like that's the case here is like, again, without knowing the rest of the story that Roy just, you know, for whatever reason, homeless people or alcoholics were in his mind, you know, evil and it just kept on building and building and building and then he went into this facility and shot two people either at random or a targeted shooting so that's kind of how i feel hmm. right as it now stallone trosper sadly dies at the scene james goggles is still alive despite a serious wound once first responders arrive they rush him to sage west healthcare hospital nearby his family who's nicknamed him sunny is soon by his side while James recovers, you can imagine that Roy is indicted quickly. There is really no discrepancy. He's openly admitted to the murder. But it's what he says to police soon after this arrest that becomes critical in examining this as a hate crime. So listen closely. Roy tells police that he targeted two men because he believed they were homeless. More specifically though, he calls them park rangers, which is a locally known term for homeless alcoholics, according to our research. But at the same time, it's most often associated with Native Americans, specifically who are homeless and struggling with alcoholism. Wow. I had no clue. Yeah, hopefully you're starting to see why words and language matter. So Asit, to your point, it's not just homeless or those who have a problem with alcohol. It's also Native Americans here, right? Yeah. So and just to be clear, so a park ranger is typically used to refer to a Native American who is both homeless and is struggling with alcoholism. That's, that's I never knew about that term and that's really interesting to me. Right. If Roy was looking for quote-unquote park ranges, the term's racial implications would put this in explicit hate crime territory, right? Right. I, it certainly does not help his case if he's using you know, these uh, racially charged terms to refer to the victims, for sure. But I said, hold on to that thought. There are a couple of things that are still unclear here. Number one, at first, I wasn't sure if the term park rangers always refers to Native Americans, right? Until I came across a new series about Riverton's park rangers from the early 2000s. News reporter Nima Vidadi states that park rangers are not just Native American, according to Riverton police. However, while working on this story, I only encountered natives. The fact that technically no alcohol can be sold on the reservation might have something to do with The sale of alcohol is actually prohibited on the Wind River Reservation, so the implication here is that some people leave the reservation for a while to get drunk. So when it comes to the term park ranges, even if it just generally refers to the homeless population, 
it sounds to me like it's often associated with homelessness, alcoholism, and Native Americans. Something that you pointed to, Asad. Yeah, it just feels like it's a catch-all term for when you want to blame someone and or something. And yeah, if that one person has any one of the, these characteristics, then you're going to use that term. So Asad, just to be clear, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, just I feel like there are times in which certain communities are stereotyped based on negative traits that are associated with some people of that community. I mean, I feel like you talk a lot about this in your uh, Immigrantly podcast. And and so, mm. you know, I feel like there, it's no different here in that if someone is homeless and or an alcoholic and or Native American or is presumed to be any one of those three things, then they might have been referred to in a derogatory way as a park ranger by people that don't know any better. I agree, Asad. You're absolutely right. Besides Roy being a murderer, which is of course wrong in its own, his actions also show how dangerous the associations of park ranger are. In order to walk into an alcohol detox facility, assume two random men are homeless and then shoot them? Well, that means Roy went based on looks alone. He saw two Native American men and assumed, well... They were park rangers. Something else is unclear too. Were the two victims, Stallone and James, actually homeless? I'm sure a lot of you are thinking about this. Again, they don't deserve murder either way, but I still want to set the record straight. Sources have also made it clear that there's no indication that his two victims were homeless during their time at the detox facility or otherwise. And eventually we found even more information on the victims in an article by Matthew Copeland from Wyofile, an independent non-profit news source. Copeland reports that both men did in fact struggle with alcoholism, but neither were homeless and they were even well known in the reservation's northern Arapaho tribe. James, the older of the two victims, and the one that survived was actually a U.S. Navy veteran. As for Stallone, it seems he came from a pretty prominent family lineage. His present family spoke up in Matthew Copeland's article too. They knew he had a drinking problem, but they also described him as kind, humble, and respectful. He made sure his family never saw him intoxicated. I said, this breaks my heart. Especially when these two are trying to get help for a problem that they were having. It's a disease. And for them to be, you know, shot here just is, is so sad. And I said, I have so many questions, right? Were James and Stallone even the park rangers that Roy was looking for? And what role does racial bias play in his decision? Roy Clyde himself allegedly said his decision wasn't race-based. But I feel like so many perpetrators think that they are not racially motivated, right? Yeah, Sadi, I mean, I think that's a common defense, if especially you know that the potential uh, ramifications of you saying that it was race-based are extraordinary. You know, like there's not a scenario in which I feel like Roy would say that it was race-based. doesn't help him in any way. Right. In an article for Mercury News, police detective Scott Peters says, and I quote, he, Roy, specifically indicated that if he had encountered white people meeting his criteria, he would have killed them as well, end quote. 
But hopefully you can see how frustrating and strange this whole criteria thing is. Stallone and James didn't even fit his criteria as despite their alcoholism, there is no indication of them dirtying the areas that Roy had to clean up after. This just doesn't seem to matter enough to Roy Asad. I am so conflicted, so confused. I don't know what this guy was thinking. I can probably see all the counter arguments that he's presenting. You know, he's just making up shit. Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back to what I was saying earlier. You know, things probably built up inside him. He clearly wasn't thinking straight, as I'm assuming that most murderers or attempted murderers don't think straight. And I don't know what to think either. I think this is a tough one for me right now. Right. Asad, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we will talk about the investigation. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. Sadia, you were going to share a little bit about the investigation, what happened. Correct. As you can imagine, the Northern Arapaho community pushes for a federal hate crime investigation. Wyoming has no state hate crime law and is one of the few states not to have one. So any hate crime charges would have to be pursued federally. This has been the case in other episodes too. Remember I said like Matt Shepard? Yeah, totally. And I wonder why we keep going back to Wyoming. It is becoming like it it seems to me like a scary place now. I don't know if that's because there isn't a hate crime law or because there are, you know, more and more people of color that are moving there or just its history. And I mean, I don't I don't know enough about the state, but yeah, it's interesting that we've done multiple cases so far in Wyoming. You know, I said there's something else as well. Unfortunately, like many of these cases we have discussed, the people in power don't pursue this case as a hate crime. For instance, Mike Broadhead, the Riverton police chief at the time said, and I quote, there were certainly racial overtones, end quote, but he was unwilling to call it a hate crime because of Roy's own statement that he was targeting the homeless. Isn't that weird? Like frustrating for me. How are police and court systems deciding at what point racial overtones turn into hate crimes? And Asad, what really surprised me was if he was targeting the homeless, wouldn't that amount to a hate crime? He was basing his anger and violence on somebody's condition, whether it was economic or otherwise, and that too is part of people's identity. So why wouldn't we consider that a hate crime? Yeah, Sadia, that's a really great point. And I think the question probably is, at what point do we stop calling something a hate crime based on someone's status, right? And so, yeah, there's homeless, there's probably all sorts of other different statuses that you could uh, potentially keep under the umbrella of a hate crime. I guess the question that I have back to you is that, do you think that someone's status as a houseless homeless person should be, you know, make them into a special protected, you know, status like sex, gender, you know, all the other things that that we talk about, religion? I think it should, Asad, because it is a vulnerable community, right? And their vulnerability lends them to be at least considered as part of a protected minority what do you think? When you think about someone's identity, you're really thinking about how vulnerable that community is to a general American public, right? And so, you know, certainly I think we both agree that religion, there's some religions that, that should be you know protected. There's 
um, gender and there's you know sex and and all all sorts of stuff. I, you know, I think I would agree with you. You know, I think that the home, houseless homeless population across the states, especially here where I am in Portland, they're just so it's a community that is targeted quite a bit, right? Hmm. And, and blamed hmm. for. Um, a lot of the issues that are happening in various communities. And, you know, I've seen it firsthand. We have a, a tiny home village, literally, you know, the street behind my house. And we've had a bunch of issues with um, people living on the streets ar- around my house here in Portland. And and so we see it on a daily basis um, where, where, where I am. And so, yeah, I think I would lean more towards wanting to include, you know, houseless people in, in under the hate crime umbrella. But Clearly, you know, Wyoming doesn't have any hate crime statute and at all during this time and, and, and I think currently as well. Right, I said. And sometimes I feel like we may call it profiling or microaggressions, but they are so scary and they can lead to hate crimes. And that's why, as I said, I think it's time to consider homeless community as part of that broader umbrella of vulnerable groups and I would be curious to know what others are thinking what our listeners think again if you have thoughts please do share with us because it also helps us understand different situations better and get broader perspective from all of you as to what you think anyways going back to the case Because on October 1st, 2015, less than three months after his arrest, Roy pleads guilty to first-degree murder and attempted murder, he is sentenced to two consecutive life terms without parole. Mm. But there is no acknowledgement of hate crime motivation. Roy Clyde remains in prison to this day at 40 years old. So I guess, Sadia, just to play devil's advocate here, like maybe the police knew that they had such a strong case or the prosecutors had such a strong case with the murder, you know, that he confessed and that, you know, he turned himself in and that they knew that he was going to be going away for, for the rest of his life, that they didn't need to pursue the hate crime charge. Like, what what is the point in pursuing that hate crime charge if you already have such a strong case and that, you know, you know that the person's going to be going away for the rest of their life? As it for me, it's protecting those vulnerable communities from future targets because then people are scared to target them, right? If they know they will be punished for doing that. I don't disagree with you, Sadia. As for James Goggles, he did eventually recover from his gunshot wound, but sadly passed away years later in 2021. We are not sure what his life looked like in the years following the 2015 shooting, There were no interviews, no statements from him, nothing. At the very least, I hope he was able to get the emotional support anyone would need after such a scary period of his life. The most recent updates I could find on the community overall come from July 2022 from County 10, a Riverton-based local news source. We learned that every year since 2015, Northern Arapaho tribe members host the Riverton Peace March and Rally. Not only does this commemorate the victims, but it also generally encourages safety and tolerance in the city, the reservation and beyond. That's great. So what do you think, Asad? Do you think it was a hate crime or not? Yeah, Sadia, I think this is a tough one for me. Um, you know, I think that understanding the term park rangers and, you know, how it was used in that community, I would love to know probably a little bit more about 
the houseless community in uh, that area and how widespread it was and what the demographics of that community was. But Rory was looking to kill someone that night. And in my head, you know, I think he was going to kill people regardless of who it was. And it just happened to be that it was, you know, two people that, that were Native American. I said, I want to go back to my initial thought. Why wouldn't we consider killing homeless people a hate crime based on their economic condition? Even if he was targeting the homeless, which, by the way, he admitted to doing, to me, it does amount to a hate crime. And to add another layer of if he was also targeting Native Americans, that's a racially motivated hate crime. So the way I see it, it definitely was a hate crime. I respect your opinion. And regardless, I think I'm glad that he is spending a long, long time in prison for what he did. So this case, like all of our cases, leaves us with some questions for all of you. What do you think? Was Roy Clyde targeting Native Americans, making this a hate crime? Should homelessness be part of the protected group or protected minority group in America? Should we prosecute racial undertones in a case? And if so, how do we do so in court? As always, thank you all for tuning in to Invisible Hate. If you want to learn more, check out links in the show notes about the case. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover. You can always reach us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for the Invisible Hate Podcast. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share it with a friend. Give us a five-star review. You know what I said? I haven't seen many five-star reviews in a month. I think it's time for our listeners to show some love. I think I would give you a five-star review for sure. (laughs) Invisible Hate is a joint production of Refilion Media and Immigrantly. We want to thank our team, including Michaela Strather, Isabel Havens, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We will be back next week with another hate crime to analyze. Until next time, I am Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Bhatt. Thanks for all your support. We'll see you next week.